so nice to be able to bring the word uh, to you this morning again. And um, last week we talked about our relationship with Jesus, what it means to have a relationship with Him, what that looks like. And today we're going to look like we're going to see what it looks like to have a relationship with others. And this isn't a a sequel to last week. If you missed it, uh, you're not going to be lost. It's more of a continuation of Jesus' teaching to his disciples uh, just even hours before he was crucified. And so let's go to John 15, and we'll begin reading in verse 12. Reading in verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we offer you our hearts and minds and ask that they would be open to hear what you have to teach us this morning. We can't comprehend what this means to us without your guidance, so we ask that, Holy Spirit, you would guide us to understand how we can apply this to our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong. They are weak, but He is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. You might have that song stuck in your head for the rest of the day. You're welcome. Have you ever sung that with your kids? Do you remember that being sung to you, maybe, by your parents? There is a good chance that everyone in here has probably told somebody in their life, Jesus loves you. And maybe if you haven't said that, there's a good chance that someone has told you, Jesus loves you. You don't need to be a theologian or a biblical scholar or an apologetic or anything. You don't need to know much at all about the Bible. But one thing you know, somewhere in there, you can't be wrong if you say, Jesus loves you. There have been week-long seminars and, and hundreds of books written on this concept of God's love for us. And even a, our love for others. How do we comprehend God's love? How do we show Others that Jesus loves them. There is so much to say in just these five verses. And I can't tell you everything there is to know on this, this topic. Because I don't know everything there is to know on this topic. But I hope we will learn this morning that Jesus wanted his disciples to know about his love. And he wanted them to go out then and love each other. How would this affect their lives? How will this affect our lives if we love Jesus and we go out and love each other? That's what I want you to focus your heart and minds on this morning. 
So really, we have here, throughout 12 to 17, we kind of have this love one another sandwich. The first and last verse, Jesus says, love one another. And in the middle, we have some meat in there about why. So the love one another is the what. What does Jesus want us to do? And all in the middle there, we learn why do we do this? Because Jesus has loved us. Last year, my wife and I got really into a few episodes of this show that was on TV. It was called Undercover Boss. And basically, the CEO of this big company would disguise himself and dress up at, and, and, and go into his own company and work on bottom-level uh, labor. You know, he'd work the drive through at McDonald's. He would clean the, the concrete floors at Disneyland. He would be in the shipping department of Amazon.com or something like that. And he'd put a mustache on or he'd wear glasses or he'd uh, change his hair color or whatever he needed to do to disguise himself. And he would work among the lowest level of laborers at his own company. And he would talk to them about their lives. And he would learn about their work and the day-to-day. He would find out about their families and what they struggled in. He even heard a lot of stuff like what was good about the company and what really stunk, what was really bad about it. He saw angry, angry people. He saw some really good workers as well. The best part of this show is you could almost just even fast forward through it and watch the, the last few minutes. It was the best part. The CEO would go back to his 800 square foot office in the city. He would go back to wearing his, his nice suit. And he just, you know, he looked like a million bucks. And he would invite these workers back into, to the corporate office. And for the first time, they would realize that they were working with the CEO, the head of this company. And at first, when they found out that he was the CEO, of course, you can imagine they were probably really nervous at first. You know, trying to retrace their conversations and trying to figure out, <laughs> did I do anything to incriminate myself? And so they're really, at first, you see, they're, they're, they're afraid. They're thinking, I'm going to get fired. Um, what did I do? Um, I hope they had cameras. I hope, what did they see? Things like that. But the CEO would then begin to tell them how he had plans for them in his company. That they were important to the overall success of how the company did. How he was proud to know that he had people like them working for him. And this, at the point of this show, this was the point where you started to see kind of their bottom lip start to quiver. You know, like, you're starting to see, like, this means something, this is important to them. They didn't expect it, but they're beginning to be overwhelmed with the emotions of what's going on. And then he would say to them, and this would clinch it, he'd say, I'm going to do everything in my power, I'm going to make sure that I make it possible for you to thrive in this company and for this to be the best experience of your life. And this, at this point, it was just a sloppy mess. You know, they're just, they're crying, even the, the toughest guys, you know, the big, real strong uh, workers on the forklift, I mean, they're crying. You know, the girls are crying, the boys are crying, it's all just a mess. For a moment, these workers were able to enter in to this very unlikely relationship with someone who was highly untouchable. They felt privileged. Why would you do this to me? Why would you give me this opportunity? Someone across the table from them who had such esteem and wealth and notoriety and position 
have the power to just squash them and destroy them and say, you're on the street, I don't care. But he didn't do that. Instead, he made them believe that they were involved in something huge that was both unlikely and undeserving. Jesus says this to his disciples. He says in verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I've made known to you. Jesus brings his followers, his disciples, into this relationship that is unlikely and undeserving. Not just for a glimpse, but permanently. The analogy of the CEO and the undercover boss, I mean, it's, it's an analogy, but it pales in comparison to what Christ has brought us into. Because Jesus isn't a, a boss of a startup company, but rather the creator of the whole universe. And he says, you're my friends. I have loved you, and I bring you into this relationship forever. You know everything that I know. God has told me things, knowledge, that no one else has seen before, and I've given it to you. And we're going to work together, and it's going to be great. And you're going to have joy, and God's going to be glorified, and lives are going to be changed, and you're going to be a part of it. And this isn't a promise just for Jesus' disciples, but every follower that comes after him who believes in him. This is unlikely. This just doesn't make sense. It should really cause us to ask, why? Why are we brought into that relationship? Why are we brought into that friendship that the world has never seen before? God is now saying, I'm bringing you into a relationship that the world has never seen. I'm blessing you. I'm, I'm giving you a privilege. I'm changing your life forever. I'm forgiving your sins and giving you significance in your life. We should really ask, why? What did we do to deserve this? Jesus answers that question if they were asking in verse 16. Nothing. This wasn't about me seeing some potential in you and saying, You've got qualities, my friend. I've got a position for you in my, in my company. But it was about him loving them. Verse 16, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Our relationship with Jesus is purely a grace-based relationship. We get to be forgiven. We get to be loved by God. We get to have our lives changed based on His love for us and nothing on what we did. I've not always seen it this way. In fact, I used to see it very differently than this. And when I was in college, I went on a mission trip with uh, dozens of other college students from all around the country, and we went to Newport Beach, California. 
is, is very rough. <laughs> I know that's what you're thinking. It came to our attention that on the beach, where just literally walking distance from our, where we were staying on the beach, there lived a very certain eccentric and animated and well-known NBA basketball player. Everybody knows who this guy is. He is world-renowned. Um, you could probably, if I showed a picture, you'd probably recognize him before you'd recognize, I don't know, Winnie the Pooh. Everybody knew who he is. And there was buzz around our, our apartment where we were staying and, and the people we were with. We were out sharing our faith on the weekends. We were sharing the gospel uh, throughout the week and to different people that we bumped into. And the buzz that was going around the whole apartment was, what if? Right? What if we went and shared the gospel with this guy and he came to know Jesus? Oh, think of all that could be done. The world would be changed. I mean, look at what he's capable of. Look at the stage that he has. Look at how effective he could be if he just knew Jesus. Maybe you've wondered the same thing about stars today. Oh, I really like him or her, but, you know, if they knew Jesus, think of what could be done because of them. I've been guilty of thinking that. Maybe you've been guilty of that too. And what I've come to learn is that is really bad theology. That's really bad theology. Jesus makes it clear the only Christians who are fruitful and effective are the ones who abide in Him. Because our fruit and effectiveness in in life does not come from something that's deep inside of us. It comes from abiding in Jesus. God will use the guy in the the street corner with the big, gigantic styrofoam arrow letting the whole world know about a closeout sale at a furniture store. When we drive by, we would say, God, think of the things that could be done if He knew you. The only big-ticket Christians are the ones who abide in Jesus. It might hurt your feelings, but God does not choose you because there's something important about you. He chose you because there's something important about Jesus. And as we're connected to Him and enjoying Him, we are filled with the blessings of all that Jesus has. And we are brought into this friendship with Jesus, and He's saying, if you connect to Me, everything that I have, I'm giving to you. And He says, you can't do it without Me. You can't be effective. You can't be fruitful. You can't experience my friendship with, with me without me. You have to have me. And when you do have me, I'm going to change your life. How many of you, became, before you came to a commitment in your relationship with Jesus, before you came to that point saying, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Jesus, thought, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to do so many good things for Jesus. You know, really, rarely does that, do we come to Jesus with that attitude. Usually what happens is we come humbled because we recognize so strongly that we need Him. 
And there's nothing inside of us that could cause us to be forgiven of our sins and cause us to give a satisfying life and cause us to have joy from God. Instead, we come to Him because we recognize we need Him, and He gives us exactly what He needs. He gives us Himself. And those who are followers of Jesus are recipients of His love and His kindness and His fellowship and of His friendship. This is the why. Why do we do anything we do? It's because of this. And Jesus wants His disciples to know so clearly that this is what they get when they get Him. When they abide in Him and get connected to Him, they get His love. Christ finds us in a state of need, and we have not been given anything to, we have not given anything to Christ. He's the one that's the giver, and He gives Himself fully to us. And our relationship with Jesus is based on this love. And He leads us to establish this relationship with one another on the same basis. So we go to that now. We go to the bread of that sandwich. The what. What is Christ calling us into in this passage? Jesus says, Seeing my example, how I've loved you, go love each other like that. Easy, right? If you find this to be a very overwhelming command, raise your hand. And those who haven't raised their hand, you're doing it perfect. You're loving, you're still alive, so obviously you haven't. (laughs) I don't know, well, I don't need to tell you that this is not easy. To love others. Or to love others like Jesus loves them. And I don't need to tell you that I have not perfected this. And you don't need to tell me that you haven't perfected this, I already know. But I can tell you that I know that Jesus is the only one who has perfected it. So we need his help. And we need to live by faith every single day. And this is a command that needs to be so heavy on our hearts and minds every single day. Because it's not something that we say, okay, I'm in a good habit of that, and I'm going to just, hey, it kind of runs itself now. This is hard. This is really difficult. And so... There isn't much in there in our passage where Jesus says, this is what it looks like practically. But he says, go and love one another as I have loved you. And a question that I was thinking as I was studying this was, you know, if Jesus says they abide in him, and if they do, they'll love one another as as he has loved them, and their life will be identified by their love for one another and their fruit in their life. I wondered, I wonder, after Jesus left them, when he was crucified, resurrected, and went to heaven... I wonder, what did the disciples' lives look like then, once Jesus was gone? Is there a way that we can kind of look into their life and say, this is what their life looked like after Jesus had left, and this is what they spent their time doing, and this is how they loved one another? To give us a good picture of this life, we want to follow what the disciples did. And so John here, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we hear of the good news of Jesus, and then the next book over is Acts, and this book is talking about what the disciples did. So Jesus saying in the, in the Gospels, go and do this. The book of Acts is telling us this is what they went and did. And so let's go to Acts. 
You can follow along. I'm just going to read a couple passages. First in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Here, let's look at what the disciples' lives looked like. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving the, their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Let's go to Acts 2. A couple pages to the left. Acts 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We find in here certain characteristics of how the disciples lived out the command that Christ gave them. This early church gives us great practices and mindsets and characteristics of what it looks like to be obedient to loving Christ and abiding in Him and loving others. So I want to look at three things, just three things that we find in this passage. What, is, what, did, what characteristics do they have? The first one is unity. Unity. They were so different. And it even says that they gave as they had need. And so we see a, a, a body of people that came from very different backgrounds, very different lifestyles, very different wealth. Some were rich, some were poor. They were such a diverse group. And even here, we have a diverse group, don't we? Not just talking about money, but talking about personalities, talking about family background, talking about preferences and styles. And they were very different, but they were unified. Because they found the one thing they had in common was they had faith in Jesus. And we're getting a, a church started, and we're planning a church in the northwest area across the freeway. And we have a group of leaders that we meet with regularly. And we are so different. And every time we get together, we realize that we're more different than we thought. And some of are here today. You guys are crazy. <laughs> but I love you. Because we're unified in something. And we see here a picture of these disciples that were so different from each other. But they came together and when they did, they had common, it says they were common heart and mind. 
when we love someone as Christ loves them, we don't judge them by what they have. We, do, we judge them by what they've been given. And all have been given Jesus. And because Jesus gave himself to us, we love each other because of that. When we look at others, we don't see all the things that make them different and how they can probably uh, you know, hurt our agenda or things like that. But we see them as being made in God's image. It takes a lot of forbearance. Forbearance is sometimes just putting up with other people's sins. We see just ugliness in other people and we we think so intently, gosh, I just, oh, I just, I can't stand that. I hate when they do this. It takes a lot of patience. It takes being patient with somebody as they are growing, assuming that they also want to grow in their relationship with God. And we know we didn't get it like that. Jesus, I give you my whole life. Well, I'm perfect. Jesus is patient with us. We learned last week, he prunes us. He clips us back. He, he helps us to bear fruit slowly. There are seasons. Things take time to grow. And so we assume that others around us want to grow as well. So we're patient with them. It takes forgiveness and endurance and perseverance. They were unified in heart and in mind. What are some ways that you can show this expression of unity more in your life with the people around you, with the people that are very different from you? There's diversity in this room, but our faith enables us to be unified. What else do we see? We see unity. We also see a lot of generosity. Both times we saw these people were selling their homes. I know you can't sell your house right now. <laughs> they were selling their land. And they were bringing it to the disciples, the leaders of the church, and saying, distribute this to people who have need. Jesus even said that when people came to him and said, what can I do logically to love somebody? And he said, here's a very practical thing. You have two coats, and you have someone, see someone that has zero, give them one. Now you both have one coat. What would that look like for us to be generous with our brothers and sisters? One, I think it takes a lot of knowing what their needs are. It takes vulnerability. How hard is that just to tell somebody, I'm really struggling financially? You know, we've got some bills that need to be paid, and I don't know how I'm going to do it, and so I'm going to put it on my credit card and just pretend it's not there, and I don't want to worry about it, and I don't want anybody to know about it because I don't want to burden people. It's hard. It takes vulnerability if people are going to be generous. It takes vulnerability. It also takes assuming that the things that we have, the blessings that God has given us, the material possessions He's given us are not for our own. And we have, and I know I'm guilty of this, we have this mentality that as we acquire all this stuff, we put a hedge around it and we say, oh, look at what I got. No, back up, no. We give everybody the Heisman, you know, like, look what I got, you don't have this, you know. 
sometimes we can get wrapped up in thinking we want something and we covet after it and we get it and then we hold on to it. The disciples were expressing their love for one another by being generous. And this isn't just only financially. That's a part of it. Hospitality is a form of generosity. Being generous with your home. Being generous with your time. Being generous with even your counsel. Some of you have been around a lot longer than others. You've learned a lot of things. And we need you. We need to learn from you. Older men and women, we, we need to learn what it looks like to be a mature woman or man of God. Will you help us? Will you give us your time? Will you give us your counsel? Parents, how do you show your little kids how to be generous? You want your kids to grow up and be generous. Be generous yourself. Practice generosity wherever you go. And your kids will, they'll see that. And they'll understand why you're doing it. And use those as teachable moments. Why, why are you, mommy and daddy, why are you doing this? Why are you giving this away? And maybe someday you'll actually see them do that too by sharing with others. How refreshing is that when you see a young child who shares with other kids? Isn't it like a breath of fresh air? You're like, oh, they've arrived. They're going to be so good. I mean, isn't that an expression of just love at its purest? Here, you can have this. Why do we, why are we generous? Because Jesus is generous to us. He gave us everything. He gave us himself. Unity, generosity, and lastly, what did the disciples do? They were obedient. They practiced obedience. They devoted themselves to prayer and God's word. And you might be thinking, what does that have to do with loving others? We can't love others as Jesus loves us if we are not growing in our relationship with God. We owe it to each other to abide in Jesus. We owe it to each other to be consistent in our fellowship with Jesus, in our prayer life, and in our Scripture life. Have you ever thought of it like that? You owe it to your brothers and sisters to have a consistent walk with Jesus. We think that when we struggle in our relationship with God, we're only affecting ourselves. But that is not how God has made us. Even the Bible says that we're a body. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, when one member suffers, what does he say? The people closest to him suffer. No. He says, all suffer. As we are a part of this body, when one of us is suffering, we all suffer. We're all connected. We owe it to each other to abide in Jesus, to live faithfully, seeking out wisdom in the Scriptures, to pray often and boldly. If you're not seeking Christ, you're not loving your brothers and sisters. We're a living, healthy, breathing, moving, functioning body. And Jesus is our head. What would that look like 
for us as Christ's body to take that responsibility a little bit more serious. Knowing that when moms and dads, when you suffer, your kids suffer. When you suffer, when, when you suffer, we suffer. I need you to walk closely with Jesus. You need me to walk closely with Jesus. And you need each other to walk closely with Jesus. So as we look at these disciples also, we see these three things, unity and generosity and obedience. That's how they took that command to love one another, and they lived their lives like that. And what happened? What happened when they were obedient? Fruit. Fruit happened. And Jesus says, this is what I'm doing this for you so that you will abide and bear fruit. What else happened? God was glorified. Lives changed. They had glad hearts. It says when they came together and ate together, they had glad hearts. They took what they needed and they rejoiced in it. They found favor with outsiders. People saw them. People outside of their fellowship saw them and there was something that appealed to them. And they had favor with them and they built relationships with people who didn't know Jesus. And this was a, this was just a pattern in their lives. I don't know if they just sat down and said, okay, what can we do better to outreach to people who don't know Jesus? And they got a, they got a parchment paper and they put it on the wall. And everybody gave ideas and they wrote it down. And then they, everybody got colored stickers and said, vote for your favorite idea. And that's what we'll do. Now, I don't mean to demean that process. In fact, it can be a really good process to get our, our hearts and minds focused on one idea. But I think they just, they just, they just obeyed Jesus. And they were consistent in their obedience with Jesus. And they were consistent in their love for each other. And the world looked in and said, I don't see that anywhere else. My heart longs for that. You guys are, you guys are spending time with each other and you're glad, your hearts are glad and I know that guy. He actually lost his farm and he's happy. He shouldn't be happy. Okay, it's okay, my family's taking care of me. That's great. That's what the world needs to see. The best outreach that we can have for people who don't know Jesus is by loving Jesus and loving each other. And he says, this is how the world will know that you belong to me if you love one another. They had fellowship and generosity and sacrifice and boldness in their love and conformity in heart and mind. There wasn't strife and jealousy and bitterness and things like that. How long did that kind of church last? One Sabbath? I don't know. Somewhere along the way, things, things seem to fall apart. Because the rest of the New Testament, we see Paul writing letters to the churches and saying, something has to change. You're living in sin, you need to repent, you need to confess. Somewhere along the way, this pattern of love for one another got distorted and changed and they stopped doing it. I guess my question for, for you today is, 
Can this happen here? Can that kind of fruit happen here at this church? Yes, it can. Is it because you're special? No. It's not because you're special. It's because as we abide in Jesus, He prunes us, causes us to bear fruit, and gives His life to us. And everything we do is changed by it. I think it's good for us to be in a habit of confession and repentance every single day. Because I'm sure there's something every single day that we're doing that is either not abiding in Jesus or, or not loving each other. And we can know with full assurance as we come before Jesus and confess that we have, that God, we have neglected our love for you and our love for each other. That we can have assurance that He gives us His full forgiveness and full love. He says again in verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that you should, that your fruit should abide And this is what he says, so that whatever you ask, the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So this can happen here. We need to pray. And what do we need to pray for? We need to pray for God to be glorified right here. We need to pray that people would abide in Jesus. We need to pray for fruit in our lives and fruit in others' lives. But be careful what you pray for, because if you're praying for fruit in your life, you're also praying that God would prune you in your life. We need to pray for obedience, and humility, and generosity, and patience with one another. Because of Jesus, we can have this picture of what it looks like to love one another. He commands us to. And we know that He'll be glorified when we do. And we know that we will find joy and gladness when we obey Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is sometimes hard to realize that there's not something really special inside of us that causes you to choose us. But then there's something humbling and relieving and refreshing knowing that you chose us because you love us. You sent us out to serve the world and each other as you have served us. And this is really hard times we don't want to be friends with people that we run into. There's times we don't want to spend time with others. There are times when we don't want to be generous because our hearts are coveting the things that we have. Help us to look into our hearts and search where we can love you and love others better. We thank you, Jesus, and we're glad that you accept us and are patient with us as we are growing in our obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.